All right, I said last week we're taking a little break from 1 Corinthians. Um, so we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians since about March. Um, we're at chapter 12. We haven't started chapter 12 yet, but it's kind of a natural stopping point. So we're going to take um, a couple-month break leading into the holidays, and then we'll pick chapter 12 back up in January. Um, so r- first, we're doing a, a short three-week series on our core values as a church. We covered the first one last week, which was um, the phrase gospel-centered. Um, and the big idea there is just that everything starts with God. Everything starts with who God is and what he's done for us. And any, any call on us and how we are to live and what we are to do and believe flows out of who God is and what he's done for us. Uh, the very name of our church, Roots Church, is, is a nod to this fact that our whole lives is to be rooted in um, who Jesus is, God's prior saving work in Jesus. Not just at the beginning of our life, not just a one-time event called conversion, but all of our lives is to be rooted in God's grace in Jesus. We keep coming back to that, um, reminding ourselves about that, about that. So we talked about that last week. If you missed it, um, it you can go uh, listen to it on the website. Today we'll cover our second core value, intentional community. Now, that phrase doesn't really need a lot of definition. It's fairly self-explanatory. A community is a group of people um, that comes together or that sh- either either lives near each other or shares some common characteristic. Intentional means purposeful, deliberate. So what we're talking about here is a group of people, namely the church, that comes together for a specific purpose. We think that is what the church is meant to be, um, especially in a world that is increasingly fragmented and where we live isolated and independent lives, even with so much social media out there, we are so disjointed from each other. God calls us to push against those tendencies. We believe that the church community, gathering together, doing life together, is not an optional add-on to being Christian, not like adding pickles to a hamburger, no thank you, but at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. So that's what we're going to look at today. There are a lot of places we could go in Scripture. Actually, one of the most relevant places we could go is 1 Corinthians 12. However, that's where we're going to be in January when we jump back into 1 Corinthians. So we're not going to go there today. We're going to be in Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. Let me read the three verses up front. We'll unpack them and then draw out some implications for us. Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So first of all, notice that there is a potential problem. There's a danger here. There's the potential for those who are in Christ, for those who have come to share to, to share in Christ, to be hardened and deceived by sin, leading to an evil, unbelieving heart and ultimately falling away from God. So the root of this is the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. 
this, this word that, that translated deceitful here has to do with giving a false or impression or appearance. So we can be fooled by sin. We can be led to believe that sin is something other than sin. Wouldn't it be nice if sin and evil always appeal, appeal, appeared, here we go, like the villains in cartoons, right? They always come on the scene, they're dressed in all black, they speak with a really raspy voice, their faces all mangled, and if that didn't give it away enough, there's some evil music accompanying them every time they appear, right? And there's no debating, no one's like, I think that's the hero. No, everyone's agreed. It's obvious. Sometimes perhaps we think that identifying sin and evil is that easy. You just look for the guy in all black and the evil music. We can think that our, our judgments and senses will be infallible in this. But sin is deceptive by nature. It entices us with lies, with false promises, false impressions. It appears good. It appears right. It appears promising and worth it. We are told that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Sin disguises itself as something that will bring us happiness, something that will be worth it. Sin tells us that God is not to be believed. God is overly restrictive, doesn't have our good in mind. Were these not the very lies spoken and believed in the garden? And as we are deceived by sin, we are hardened and gain an evil, unbelieving heart, leading us to fall away from the living God. Now, notice the combination of evil and unbelieving. The essence of evil, according to God, has to do with unbelief in him and his salvation. So remember what we looked at last week with the gospel, the center of God's purposes for creation. As we defined last week, the gospel is a message about what God has done by his own initiative, leading to forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with him and eternal life with him that must be believed by faith. So the theme of all of scripture is that salvation is of the Lord. It is a work of God from beginning to end. It is not us moving towards God or us doing something to get him to act for us, twisting his arm, but something that he does of his own initiative for us. If this is the case, then what God is after in us, what brings us in line with the end for which we are created is believing God. Not just believing facts about him, but believing him, taking him at his word, receiving his salvation as a gift. What God is after is more than just moral, ethical, just living, treating other people kindly. He wants that too. But God is ultimately after hearts that are alive and awake to his presence, to his worth, to his goodness, to his glory. To soft and pliable and believable and believing and worshiping hearts. And so an unbelieving heart, in God's view, is an evil heart. This is 
to be sure not how our world views evil. And having grown up in this world and in this culture, this is perhaps not how we are conditioned to think and to feel about evil. But in a God-created, God-directed, for-God world, evil begins on the vertical plane. It begins with our relationship with our God. What is our attitude and disposition towards our creator God? Now, unbelief can take various forms. You know, we might go the outright disbelief in God and just deny that he exists. We may deny that God is God, that Jesus is God, that God exists in the Trinity, that Jesus rose, died, and rose for our sins. Or it may simply mean claiming to believe in God, but not living as if he were actually true. Giving lip service to him, and perhaps to the church and others around us, but being unchanged in our heart and will. But either way, we no longer live for God, in the power of his spirit, because of what he's done for us in Jesus. We've become hard to God and to his word, rather than soft and pliable. We no longer let him lead us, and teach us, and correct us, and have authority over us. Rather, we stand over and above him. So that's the danger. That's the danger here, that we would be deceived by sin. And, and just to be clear, the we here is Christians, is those who believe in God. We, this is not something we are immune to. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking, but I thought God promises to keep those who are his. Doesn't Jesus say that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out? Don't we sing, he will hold me fast? Yes, we do, and we mean it. And those are glorious and important important and wondrously true statements. Our hope is not in ourselves, in our will, in our resolve, in our strength, but in God and his promises and power. He will hold us fast. However, at the same time, one of the means that he uses to hold us fast is through such warnings as this, as we hear them and as we heed them. We cannot just be passive in this. We must hear and heed such warnings. And actually, this is exactly what verse 14 says. If you look at verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ and all the benefits that are in him. We have come, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, one of the ways that we know that we have come to share in Christ here and now is our continuing on in faith and confidence in him. Our perseverance is a fruit that God is alive and active in us, that we are his. In this, we aren't keeping up our salvation. We aren't carrying it on our own back, but we are confirming and proving that it, God is in us, that it is alive and active. So if this is the case, if we are actually supposed to hear warnings like this and not just shrug them off and say, well, I, I was saved back on July 1st of whatever year, but we are actually to hear this warning and do something about it, 
What then are we to do? How do we do this? Well, there's a couple, couple things here just in these verses that we are told. First of all, first part, take care. We are told to take care lest this happen to us. Now, if you think about it, this is only so helpful because no one plans on being deceived. If you knew you were going to be deceived, you wouldn't be deceived. No one knows that they're being deceived as you're being deceived. That would no longer call it be called deception. And we especially don't plan on being deceived by ourselves, right? Perhaps we are readily aware and on high alert for being deceived by others. Our culture is, puts a lot of pre- emphasis on the potential to be led astray and manipulated and used and abused by others, especially those in positions of power. And that's good. That is one form of deception. But we tend to think that we couldn't possibly deceive ourselves. Right? As long as we're making willing choices, there are choices, we couldn't be deceived. But that's a lie. The difficulty in living in the world that we live in, a world racked by sin, is not simply that others can harm and mislead us. That's true. But that's only part of the problem. We can also harm and mislead ourselves. And this here is a command to take care that you are not deceived, especially by yourself or by the sin that tempts you. Beware of your own ability to be led astray when no one else is involved, when there's no pressure or manipulation, by your own heart. By the sin that can deceive. Now, how are we supposed to do that? If we can't fully trust others to not lead us astray, but we also can't fully trust ourselves, well... What option do we have? Well, God doesn't leave us there. Thankfully, there's more to this, and there's much more we could consider in God's word, but but here today, especially in relation to intentional community, consider the other command here in these verses. Verse 13, exhort one another every day. So part of the way that we take care to not be deceived is by exhorting one another and receiving exhortation from one another. Now, what does this mean? If you're like me, you don't use the word exhort a whole lot in your vocabulary. So what does this mean? The word translated exhort here can have a variety of senses. Um, It's found a number of times throughout Scripture. Uh, Usually it either means something like urge or beg, which is how we... tend to typically think of the word, or it can mean something like comfort or encourage. It's it's stronger than merely requesting, right, or suggesting. It's a little bit stronger than that, but it's, it's also not forcing or requiring. At the same time, there's a personal element to it, right? When you're exhorting somebody, you're willingly entering in and getting engaged in their lives, whether through 
urging or reasoning or comforting or consoling. You are trying to nudge them into a certain direction with some personal responsibility, willingness to engage them. Perhaps we have a tendency when we hear this word exhortation to think that it merely applies to, to times of sin and to confronting sin. But it's much broader than that. It applies equally to times of, of sin and times of suffering. And it can look different depending on the situation. So in times of suffering, we exhort by comforting and encouraging and drawing near to those who are suffering, who may be discouraged, who may begin to question God's goodness and presence. We are to mourn with those who mourn. We are to speak God's truth and remind them of God's promises that they might continue on faithfully. And then in times of, of sin, we exhort by urging and pleading with those who may be deceived or may be, be tempted to, to give in to sin and harden their hearts. We urge and plead and reason with them to turn and repent. Whatever the situation, to exhort means to take a personal care and interest in someone's life for the sake of their faith in God. Not just speaking as an outside, disengaged observe, out observer, kind of lobbing truth bombs over to them. No, we walk with them through sin and suffering. And the longer you walk with people through sin and suffering and also consider your own hearts, you realize that most of our life and the most of the lives of others is a complex mixture of sin and suffering. Right? So we are sinned against. We, we suffer because of it. And then our response is a mixture of attempting to right the wrong, but also continuing some sin as well. Or we experience some trial and we suffer and we try to respond faithfully, but it's usually a mix. Um, take, for example, the sin of anxiety, which I mentioned last week. Much of the time, anxiety itself is a complex mixture of suffering, the weight of life bearing down on us, the needs of others, perhaps chemical factors in our bodies, all of that mixed with a sinful lack of faith in God to provide and care for us. And in different streams of Christianity, there tends to be a tendency to either see everything through a sin lens or everything through a suffering lens. And so we're either just hunting for sin and only exhorting through calling people to repentance or we're looking for all the ways that people are suffering because of the evil world out there and only exhorting them by encouraging them but never addressing sin. But both of these are only half the story. The world we live in is complex. We are complex. I am complex. You are complex. There are rarely situations that are just all sin and no suffering or vice versa. So how do we do this if that's the case? Well, it seems to me that it is almost always better to enter into a situation, to enter into someone's life, first with a concern to comfort and encourage. Even when there is clear sin at play, Look for how an individual may be suffering, even if a result of their own sin. 
I'm not talking about overlooking sin, but where do we begin with entering in and exhorting someone? Um, I mean, for an, an a clear example of this, parents, you know that when you tell your child not to do something, because you'll know get, they'll get hurt, and they do it. Of course, parts of you wants to respond, see, I told you. But you know that's not the best way to respond. You know that's not going to help the situation, and it's not going to help them know that you love them. You first need to comfort them. They're suffering, and they need comfort. They need to know that you care that they are hurt, even if they are hurt because they didn't listen to what you told them. You're not just a passive observer, a judge or lawgiver bringing down the hammer when they fall. You're a father or mother called to show care and compassion towards them. So is God towards us. He presents himself as a loving father. He tells us repeatedly that he is compassionate, that he's rich in mercy towards sinners, that he's gentle and lowly at heart, approachable. Paul says in Romans 2 that it is God's kindness and forbearance and patience that are meant to lead us to repentance. Which means he doesn't merely convict us of sin. He does that. But he would also, at the same time, just as importantly, have us see his gracious and welcoming heart. Have us see that our sin need not keep us from him. And as he receives us and as we come to him and we realize that he receives us mercifully, tenderly, we are led to acknowledge and openly confess our sin, knowing that it will not change his heart towards us. He's already paid for all of our sin once and for all on the cross. And so we are called to be towards one another. As we enter into someone else's unique mixture of sin and suffering, even suffering as a result of their own sin, they need to know that we love them and care for them. They need to know that we will welcome them as Christ has welcomed us, as Paul commands us in Romans 15. And when we do this, when we show care and compassion towards someone suffering, we have a place then over time, to speak words of exhortation, to urge and to plead, because we've shown that we're willing to walk along with them. Now, I want to back out a little bit further. We, we've seen that exhortation involves both times of suffering and sin, both urging and comforting, but it's even broader than that. Um, to, to use some medical terms, there is a need for preventative exhortation, not just diagnostic and surgical exhortation. In other words, this is not just about addressing specific times of suffering and sin. This is an overall coming alongside someone, walking with them, encouraging, nudging, pressing them on in the faith in preventative ways, right? The, the biblical images of the church as a body and a family imply that this is happening. Uh, you don't use the physical parts of your body, your eyes, your ears, your hands, or feet, only when there's an urgent need. No, you need them daily, all of the time. 
Same with the idea of a family. A family doesn't only engage and make use of the bonds of their relationships only when there's a dire need. They live together and love one another every day. Which is exactly what this passage says. Exhort one another every day. So the church isn't here only for when you have a specific need that needs addressed. The church is not merely like an emergency room for only those with recognizable serious needs to come to. No, continuing the analogy of, of health, if your whole game plan for the health of your body was merely having the presence of an emergency room to go to, and you forsake, you, you didn't pay any attention to eating well or exercising or sleeping well, then you wouldn't be very healthy. We need more than just an emergency room. In the church, we need the daily preventative exhortation of the church community if we are to be healthy. This, this includes a simple gathering together in, in a, a place like this, um, coming before God and, and worshiping him together, bearing witness to his presence and grace, confessing sin, submitting to God's word, uh, some of the times that I am most encouraged in my faith are, are as we're singing and I look out and I see somebody claiming the truths of a song or crying out in, pr in prayer, knowing the things that they are going through and knowing how significant it is that they're able to say those words. This preventative exhortation includes hearing the stories of others continuing on faithfully in the faith. Um, we try to give some space for this. We do some testimonies on Sunday mornings once in a while. We, in our members' meetings, we, we have people share evidences of God's grace, but you all have many opportunities to do this in your life, to tell stories of what God's doing in your life, to hear others do the same and be encouraged. This preventative exhortation happens as we baptize people and as we take communion together and we together celebrate God's grace taking root in someone's life and come together and unify with them and say, we're in this with you. It happens as we hear the needs of one another and respond, um, whether that's offering wisdom and counsel, meeting physical, tangible needs, praying for one another, just being present in a listening ear. If we aren't doing all of this preventative, everyday exhortation, it's much harder to do the in-the-moment diagnostic or responsive exhortation. There's much less room or willingness to enter into someone's life if you haven't shown a willingness to do, do that over time. You know, there is something to the idea of building up relational capital with people. Consistently being present, showing love, Proving your care and compassion, not only so that you can be able to speak into their lives in the future, but so that when the time comes, there's room to do so. Room to love in a different but equally valuable way. This is part of the reason that we think there's value in our mingle time. I know some of you like meet your weekly quota of social interaction in those five minutes, and some of you thrive on that. 
but there's some value in small talk. Even if it doesn't get all that deep in, I mean, we call it welcoming one another time. You know, we are told to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. You can legitimately show compassion and care in five to ten minutes. Even if you don't get into the depths of what's going on in your life. And that can be a entryway into following up and showing deeper love and care for people as you know what's going on in their lives. Exhort one another every day. This is an incredibly practical command for us as a church. This is God's word. Exhort one another every day both when you see and recognize your need for it and when you don't. So consider those in this room whom God has called you into a church community with, whom you have some responsibility towards as a family. They, I mean, it's implied here, we have this command, it's implied that we need this. Others in this room need your exhortation. You need the exhortation of others and not only when you have a serious issue or need in your life. Look for opportunities to encourage, to come alongside, to comfort, to mourn with, to confess sins to, to grant forgiveness, to urge and to warn. So that our present confession and sharing in Christ together and all the benefits and the promises and the encouragement that's in him might not be in vain. Might not be in vain. That we might hold our original confidence firm to the end. This thing we are doing here is not an independent endeavor, but a community project by design. Exhort one another every day. We're going to take communion now. And communion is a way that we celebrate both what we talked about last week and what we talked about this week. It has this, so in communion, we are celebrating what God has done for us, the initiative he took to make us his own. But not only that, we are also celebrating and reminding ourselves of the body that we are a part of. That we don't confess alone, but together. That we have unity and fellowship in Christ. And there is something significant to doing this together rather than on our own. Let's pray.